Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even there. I'm excited that you've joined us for week four of this series as we've been digging in and immersing ourselves in Psalm 139. Those of you in Skagit, glad you're joining us. Those in Boca Raton, it's always good to have you with us. And if you're watching online right now, live streaming, uh, glad that you're with us today. I thought as we started week four, it'd be good to maybe hear from another voice. So I've invited a dear, dear friend of mine to join me. Would you welcome Alf Ruth Calkins as she joins me today? Yeah. <laughs> you. Okay. Okay, Alta Ruth, uh, many of you know her. If you don't know her, you're missing out. She's amazing. She's been a part of my life since before I was alive. I mean, she knew my parents when they were in college. I think you uh, ran their young adults class or something. I can't remember. But <laughs> she knew them back in the, in the 50s. And uh, she's, we've been in this church together for, I've been here almost 30 years. And she was very instrumental in not only having me come here, but uh, very involved in having me be a part of the senior pastor. Anyway, Psalm 139 is a very significant chapter to... Uh, to Alta Ruth, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of a backstory. Then I'm going to turn it over to her. In the 60s, she was convinced that she could not memorize Scripture, but she knew the importance of Scripture, and so she wanted her children to memorize Scripture. Her husband, Lyle, was a man of great memory and, and Scripture as well. So they joined an organization called Scripture Memory Fellowship, where the kids were assigned Scriptures to memorize, and then they had to tell an adult, and the adult would check them off, and then they'd get a prize. So Alta Ruth decided to be the designated recipient of the uh, scriptures that were being recited and knowing that she couldn't memorize them. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then she and her family went to, uh, to hear Bill Gothard at Bo Basic Youth Institute uh, in Seattle. And he talked about the, um, not only the need, but the requirement of hiding God's word in our heart. And that, that brought about conviction to her that I should be doing this. This is what God's word says. And then he said that it's not about your ability, but your willingness, because God would never ask you to do something you couldn't do, you know, with his strength. And so he challenged them to memorize scripture. She was uh, convicted in her heart and in her mind with that, and this whole idea of memorizing a chapter. So in 1969 or 1970, things changed. Alta Ruth, on a trip to Oregon, I'm going to turn that over to you and let you tell us the story. So my husband Lyle and I were on our way to Oregon to a meeting. And I happened to be driving at the time, and so he picked up his Bible and he said, uh, we're going to memorize the chapter in the Bible on this trip. Oh, okay. What, what are we going to memorize? Psalm 139. Oh, yes, I remember. That's what they recommended. And we start by memorizing by, with chapters. So I said, okay, how many verses? And he said, oh, just 24. 24? <laughs> Oh, mercy. If I choose, I would have chosen 117, just two verses in that chapter. 
But here I was, a captive audience, and so he started re reading uh, one verse at a time. He read the first verse, and I repeated it. He read it for another ver no, the first verse again, and I repeated the first verse again, and I re repeated I was driving, and it's one I stayed on the road, but there I was driving and memorizing. All of a sudden, I, I really was memorizing. It was amazing. And I just uh, was thanking the Lord and having fun with it. And it was just, that's how I got started, mm -hmm. memorizing by chapters. And it has been a, such a blessing to me through the years yeah. to uh, have known that. Yeah. So, so she memorized Psalm 139 in, in somewhere in 1969 or 1970. And I called her a couple weeks ago, and I said, would you be willing to quote that? And she said, oh, my, I haven't done that in years. So I gave her a couple weeks to work on it. I also told her she could use a little bit of a cheat sheet. She memorized it in the Living Bible, but Altruth, I'm excited <clears throat> uh, to have you quote for us Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit or stand, when far away you know my every thoughts. You know what I'm going to say before I even say it. You both precede and follow me and place your hand of blessing on my head. This is too glorious, too wonderful to believe. I can never get lost to your spirit. I can never get away from my God. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the place of the dead, you are there. If I go to the farthest winds, even there, your hand will guide me. <clears throat> your strength will support me. I got um, <laughs> If I try to hide in the darkness, the night turns to light around me. For even darkness cannot hide from God. To you, the night shines as bright as the day. Darkness and night are both alike. Darkness and light are both the same to you. <clears throat> you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and set them together in my, wove them together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous, and how well I know it. You were there when I was being formed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born, and, and uh, I lose my words sometimes. Before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. How precious, Lord, that you, uh, how precious that you are. <laughs> how precious it is, Lord, to realize that you're thinking about me constantly. I can't even count how many times a day your thoughts turn towards me. And when I waken in the morning, you're still thinking of me. Surely you would slay the wicked, Lord. Away, bloodthirsty men, be gone. They blaspheme your name and stand in arrogance against you. How silly can they be? Oh, Lord, shouldn't I... Um, shouldn't I be greed with them? Yes, I hate them, for your enemies are my enemies too. Search me, O oh Lord, and know my heart. Test my thoughts and lead me along the 
life of everlasting life yeah. on the path to life. Amen. Thanks, Dr. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, isn't that wonderful? Well, yeah. I made it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. You know, okay. um, Alfred, I, I, didn't, I didn't mention this in the other services, but you are the ongoing legacy. Your mother, Eunice Burt, was a woman of the word. And uh, I remember in her, in her latter years of life, she would just sit and just, just loved the word of God. And that love has been passed on to you. Your husband, Lyle, was a man who memorized many, many chapters of scripture. And you have taken that. Yes. Alfred said that having that Psalm 139 in her heart has allowed God to bring it up and bless her over the decades so much. Yes. And that's why memorized scripture is such a beautiful thing. Alfred, thank you so much yes. uh, for sharing this weekend. <laughs> so, Yeah, I, I know that, that some of you uh, are memorizing portions or all of Psalm 139, and I just want to encourage you to continue on. I've had different people say, well, I've memorized five verses or 18 or all 24, but just continue to hide God's word in your heart. What an incredible psalm this is. Last week, Pastor Kip did a fantastic job looking at that middle section uh, of the scripture, and what's amazing in this whole psalm is while he keeps, the psalmist keeps talking about himself, the whole thing is about God, and that whole passage that, that that Pastor Kip talked about was, you know, uh, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And in this famous verse, for I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And it just goes on talking about how God is, has, has woven me together and knit me together in my mother's womb. This concept that we've been beautifully created in the very image of God. And it's an amazing thought when you think about this. Because the opening pages of scripture, it says that God created man in his image. In the next book, in Exodus, when the top ten are given, the Ten Commandments, God gives this third commandment, you shall have no graven images of me. You, so you have that image, you know, we're created in God's image, but we're, um, we're not to have any graven image. He said, you know, like other religions in their temples, they have these images of their pagan gods, not with my followers. You're to have no graven images. I have created you in my image. So the reality is this, the closest thing you can see to the image of our invisible God is if you turn sideways and look at that person and go, ooh, that's what the image of God is. Not on the external, but on the internal that you've been created in this holy, sacred way, stamped with the very image of God. He says, don't create an image of me. I've created you in my image. I know this dates me, but some of us grew up watching Gilligan's Island. And there was this one episode where Gilligan and the skipper were going through the jungle and they came across this tiki totem pole and there at the top of it was this image that was strikingly similar to Gilligan. Anyone remember that? And, and then so all these natives, they, they find Gilligan and they think it's his, their god. And, they, and so God's saying, listen, don't worship Gilligan. You know, that's not, don't make a graven image. I've created you in my image. And throughout this scripture, throughout this chapter, we see where the psalmist, he's just amazed by God's involvement in his life. In Psalm 8, and we already looked at this uh, a little bit earlier. We'll come back to it again today. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We'll come back to that in, in just a minute. But then he talks about this creation. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That we're created in his image. Yes, we're, we're not God, but we're created in God's image. A few years ago, my friend uh, Tom Burke, Professor Tom Burke, I call him the professor, he invited me to go to a lecture up in Canada, and we were going to hear Dr. Ian Provan speak. This guy's brilliant, got his doctorate, his PhD at Cambridge. He was releasing this book called Seriously Dangerous Religion, and so we we're going to hear this lecture. So we go up to Regents College, we're sitting there, and I'm telling you, 
most of the lecture just was like over my head. I mean, it's like, I'm looking for, where's the color crayons? I mean, this thing was so deep. But in this lecture, he referred to this verse, and he talked about how we are made a little lower than the heavenly beings, that we're not divine, we're not God, but we've been crowned with glory and honor, and that these two terms are traits that are attributed to God. That somehow there's this, we're creation, but we have these traits of God. For instance, when Isaiah comes into God's very presence, and he's there on the throne, and his train fills the temple, and there's these angelic beings going around the throne, they're saying, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with your glory. And when the angels came to announce the birth of the Messiah, it says that the glory of the Lord shone round about them, that this is a trait, an attribute of our God. In Revelation chapter 4, it says that he is worthy of all glory and honor and power because he has created all things by his will. They were all created. And so what, he's, what, what Proban was saying is when you look at this verse, you begin to understand that, yes, we are made in the image of God. We are fearfully and wonder, wonderfully made. We are made of clay yet destined for glory. That we have this, this human side and yet there's this stamp of God's image on our life. Amazing what sets humans apart from all the rest of creation. In the creation account, God speaks everything else into existence. But when it comes to man, there's the touch of the divine and the breath of the divine. That's why life is so holy and sacred. And what this great picture that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the psalmist just says, man, this is, this is too much. It's, it's too wonderful for me. It's too, too lofty for me to attain. He's not the only one that felt that way. In Job chapter 7, says, What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning? Well, what is it I mean, in this whole psalm that we've been seeing? God, that you know every detail of my life, the insignificant details about when I sit down and when I stand up. The hidden details of my heart, of my thoughts, of my dreams, of my doubts, of my, my, my darkness and, and my fears. All this. God, you know it all. You know the things that no one could know. You know the things that everyone can know. And you're with me no matter where I go, to the heavens, to the depths, the wings of the dawn, the far side of the sea. There's nowhere I can go. And you've created every piece of me before I even drew my first breath. You were there creating me. And he doesn't just mass produce these things on an assembly line. But we see that he's involved in our lives. So today we're going to pick up in verse 16. So if you have your Bible, your phone, your tablet, notebook, whatever, Psalm 139, verse 16, we're going to look at two and a half verses. And I just got to warn you right up front. Again, these two and a half verses are so filled with so much stuff. And as I've studied them, there have been so many thoughts and verses and ideas and concepts and questions that have come that this sermon today, the only way I can describe it, it's like an Einstein hairdo. There's just stuff that goes everywhere, okay? So those of you who are extremely linear, we will be going through the verses, but there's these Einstein hairdos everywhere through it, okay? I'm hoping by the end we can kind of put it all up in a nice little messy bun and walk out of here with a good, good thing for us to walk away with. So I want us to look at this thing and know that I'm going to just be going, oh, and, and hey, squirrel, and you know, all those kind of things. And some things will be out there that could, we could keep going down these trails, but I'm just going to go part way. Ready? Sweet. Verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is an amazing thought. Now here's one of those times I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit trail, not very far, because this rabbit trail could take us for years. I mean, it, it deserves an entire sermon or an entire series. But whenever you read this verse, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them come, came to be, it brings up this question about predestination and free will. 
And if God has ordained everything, if he's pre, predestined things to happen, then is there any free will? And if there's not free will, how can I be held responsible for decisions that I made if God had already preordained those things and all that? So that's the little rabbit trail I want to go down for just a minute. I will say this. Godly, scholarly, pious men and women have debated and dis discussed and disagreed on this topic for hundreds and thousands of years. So I'm going to get you all on, on track in two minutes. Here we go. So this is what I know, that there are all these unanswered questions about the issue of predestination and free will. J.I. Packer was once asked, and J.I. Packer is a brilliant, brilliant man. He was once asked, how do you reconcile the fact that there are verses that talk about God's predestination and there are verses that talk about man's free will? J.I. Packer said, yes. <laughs> we can't understand all the mysteries of God. There are those verses, and we don't know all of uh, the ways of God. And here's what I believe, and this I won't ever budge from. I believe that God is sovereign, and I believe that his providential hand divinely orchestrates things in our lives. And I believe that he gives us a free will. So how do you bring those together? For just a minute down this rabbit trail, let me give you a couple of illustrations that I tell you right up front are woefully inadequate. They are elementary to try and tackle such a huge theological issue. But I'm going to give them to you because it helps me understand it on, on a level that I can comprehend. Two inadequate illustrations because I think, in my understanding, there are some nuanced differences between predestination, forethought, and ordaining like that. So let me give you one of them. Whether or not you're aware of it, we've had an inordinate amount of snow this winter, more than usual for us. And there have been some times where it's caught us off guard. It's actually caught the weathermen off guard. It's like, well, we weren't expecting that much snow. And there have been some times where there's enough snow that they're saying, they're urging people, don't go out, don't get on the roads, they're dangerous, the, the snow drifts, the slick, don't leave. And I, like every other male with a four-wheel drive in Whatcom County, feel like it's my civic duty to go out in those conditions. Because I need to make tracks for people and bust through the drifts and see how bad they really are so that I can report back and help older ladies. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And I have an FJ Cruiser. It has four, full-time four-wheel drive. The tires aren't like huge mud tires, but they're a little aggressive. And just by the nature of the vehicle, it's lifted a bit. So I go out. Well, on one of these occasions when it had snowed again and had drifted, I got up to go to work. And going out of our driveway and the road that never gets plowed out to the main road from our house was a little bit deeper and a little slippier, more slippery than normal. And, and I mean, it was even a struggle in my car. I mean, it wasn't a problem, don't get me wrong. But, but it, was, uh, it was a little bit, uh, it, a little more taxing to get out onto the main road. I get up and leave before my wife's awake. And so I got to the church here and I sent her a text, you know, saying, good morning, babe, all this uh, stuff. Pre, not, I'm not the prelims, the good stuff. And then I said, Hey, our driveway and the road are really bad. It's really deep and really slippery. I don't think you should go out today. But this is what I know. That my, my wife's car is not four-wheel drive. It's not even front-wheel drive. It's rear-wheel drive. And while the tires are good, they're not snow tires. They're not studded tires. And the car, by its nature, is lower to the ground than, than normal. It's a horrible snow car. I know this about her car. I bought the car. It's a horrible snow car. What I also know is that my wife was getting stir-crazy of being stuck in the house for days on end, not being able to get out unless I took her out, and she was going crazy. She loves to exercise, and I also know about my wife that she believes that she's the exception to every rule, that somehow it doesn't apply to her, 
And so as I'm leaving and as I'm texting her saying, stay at home, in my mind, I know she's going to say, oh, it can't be that bad. Surely I can get out on the main road and go. So I kept my phone with me all morning, fully expecting to get a phone call from her saying, hey, Bob, I'm stuck. Can you come dig me out or get me unstuck? Fully expecting, because I know her car, I know the conditions, I know her status, and I know, I know her mindset. Carry my phone with me all morning. 10 o'clock came, no phone call. 11 o'clock came, no phone call. 12 o'clock came, no phone call. And I'm like, no way. So I went through my day. I got home and went inside, and we were talking. He said, how's your day? I was telling her about it. I said, how was your day? He said, fine. He said, oh, Bo, he's our neighbor. Bo had to dig me out because I tried to get out, and I said, I knew it. I knew it. She didn't call me, but I knew. Now listen, I foreknew what was going to happen because I knew her car, I knew her conditions, I knew her mindset. I knew what was going to happen. I didn't predestine that to happen. I didn't cause that to happen. And could it be that God in his infinite wisdom knows what we're going to do? He not necessarily tells us what we will decide, but he knows in advance. There's that foreknowledge. Or how about this word ordained? Ordained. Because some would look at this and they would say, well, Man, if God's ordained, and and I've heard people say this, there's not a thing I can do to add one day or take one day away from my life. Well, if that's totally true, then I can live a a high-risk lifestyle, a high-fat diet, you know, do everything I want to do and drive pintos and all these risk life-defined acts. I could do those things because it doesn't really matter. Okay, well, let me give you another thought about this. What about looking at it this way? Again, I know this isn't completely, uh, not even closely adequate to, to tackle this. Every two years, uh, I take a group of people from Cornwall to Israel. And so this last week, I've been working on our trip for February of 2018, talking with the tour company, talking with the tour guide. And I've been there seven or eight times. I know what I want us to experience. There's some things we're going to change, some things we're going to go on certain days, some things I want to repeat, some things, some new things we want to add, and some things I haven't done for a while, those kind of things. So I'm putting this all together, and it's all going to be planned and ordained before we ever leave. And when we get it all together, it'll be an itinerary. So for this trip to Israel, all the, if you were to go, all the days ordained for you were written in the itinerary before one of them came to be. They're already planned out. Because I know the plans I have for you, declares your pastor. <laughs> now, if you went on that trip, and we were in Israel, and somewhere along the way, there's some jet lag or a lot of walking, and one day you're tired, and so we're getting off to go see something really cool, and you say, you know what, I'm just gonna stay on the bus. That's your decision. Or maybe you're really tired and you say, you know, today I'm just going to stay in the hotel. I'll see you guys at dinner. You guys go have your day. I'll stay here in the hotel. Or you get ticked off at me, say I'm done with this whole tour. You go to the airport, plop down however many hundreds of dollars and take an early flight home. All of those are your prerogative. But if you choose to do that, there's some things you're going to miss out on that I had ordained for you to experience. Does that make sense? And so if that were the case, could it be that when God says, all the days ordained for you, he says, I've got things planned for you. You've got to choose. Are you going to keep in step with the Spirit? Are you going to walk according to my word? Are you going to follow my ways? Are you going to be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Are you going to be listening for those things? Are you going to be available for those things? You don't have to if that's your choice. But if I don't, I'm the one that misses out. In Psalm 40, we read this. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done The things you planned for us, you've ordained for us that are in our itinerary, the things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell them, they would be too many to declare. And I wonder, how many times in my life do I stay on the bus and miss what God has ordained for me? 
Maybe because of my own rebellion and sinfulness. Maybe it's just because I'm distracted with things that are just life. Whatever it might be. And I miss out on what he's ordained for me to have those things. When I begin to look at it that way, for those of us who've been created in the image of God and that he's ordained every day, I begin to understand that from God's perspective in our life, in your life, in mine, there's never an ordinary day. There just never is. Every day is ordained. Every day he has something for us. He has plans for us. And we choose whether we'll fully engage and embrace that day. Now, here's another Einstein hair thought. He says, all the days are ordained for me. Interesting how often Scripture talks about days. We, we like years and chunks of time, but he, Scripture talks, this is the day the Lord has made for us, right? Give us, Jesus says, give us this day, not this week, not this month, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus would all say, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough troubles of his own. Moses, in his psalm, in Psalm 90, says, Lord, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And maybe those in recovery have it right. Like, one day at a time. We like doing things in big, you know. Bob, how old are you? 53 and a half. Years, not days. I mean, rarely do I ever answer. I'm 19,615 days, which is what it is today, if anyone's wondering. We, we don't think about it that way. Well, God says, you know what? I've got something for you this day. Today, I have something for you. See, I think we could spend our whole time just talking about this and, and how I would love to, but I think we need to move on so we can get through at least two and a half verses. But to know that every day, every day is a gift that is given to us from God. It's ordained, set apart, holy. This day is a holy day, not because it's Sunday, but because it's a day that God has created for you. All right, let's move on. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. I love this one, and this goes in a couple different, two or three different directions in my mind. Now, I didn't do really good in, in English and language, language arts, and so I may have this a little bit wrong, and you can correct me afterwards. I, I would appreciate that. But I think, and this is really was a weakness for me, especially in grade school, I think precious is an adjective, and an adjective modifies a noun. Now, here's the question. Here's some different ways we can look at this. Does this adjective modify the proper pronoun here of, of me, or the pronoun of or whatever me is, that one, or does it modify this noun of a thought? Let's take a look at, or both, both. So if it's like, how precious to me, like these are valuable to me, these are priceless to me, God, your thoughts, your insights, your, your wisdom, your knowledge, your word, that is so precious to me. I mean, and isn't that what the psalmist said in Psalm 19? Like halfway through when he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. And he just goes on, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the, uh, the um, uh, you know, ordinances of the Lord, radiant, giving light to all these things. And then he says, more precious than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. That these thoughts of yours, God, they're, they're so precious to me. Now that's a great way to look at that. And that's our desires that God's word would be of, of such value to us, that we would long for it, that we would desire it, that we would build our lives around it. That's a good way to look at that. But what if the precious is modifying thoughts? That, that it's the thoughts toward me. The thoughts from God, God, your thoughts toward me are precious. 
your thoughts are precious that you think of me. Not your thoughts are angry toward me. Your thoughts are frustrated at me. Your thoughts are, your thoughts are precious toward me. And God thinks of me as his son or his daughter. His thoughts are so precious. Or what if? What if it's both? What if we take that one hair and that other hair, put in a third and have a braid? What if these precious thoughts of God are so precious to me? You know, in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. In the King James Version, it's translated this way. I know the thoughts I think of you, declares the Lord. Thoughts to give you peace. That God would think of me. That his thoughts would be precious. Oh man, how precious that is to me. That God, with 7.5 billion people on the face of this planet today, would even know who I am, would even know that I exist, would even think about me. And not just those that are on the planet today, but what about throughout human history? A Friday night, I was flying home from, from Indiana. I had a meeting in Indiana. I was flying home. We're coming into Seattle. There's some turbulence. And we broke through some clouds, and, and I was sitting by the window, and then for just a moment we were in, and it was just, it was just spectacular. The sky was just clear, and there was the, the moon, this crescent moon. And as I was, thinking, I was just thinking about that moon, it was like every generation, all of human history, for eons, have seen that moon. So you think about not just the 7.5 billion people on the planet, but what about every year, every generation, every millennia, millennia billions upon billions upon billions, and God thinks of me? I think that's why the psalmist and Job would say, you know, who is man, what is man that you remind of? That little old me? I mean, I get it that my mom thinks about me. I mean, she should, right? I mean, she's my mom. It's your job as a mom to think about your child, to, to love your child. My mom loves me. She thinks about me. But she's only got three of us, not 7.5 billion. So I would expect that from my, my mom. My mom sent me a text this week. said, have I told you lately that I love you? Well, you better not forget it. I mean, she just loves me. That's my mom. I think she thinks about me all the time. But there's not 7.5 billion people that she's thinking about. Now, I've shared with you that on Fridays, I, I go to Orchard Park to visit Lois. And a couple weeks ago, I walked in. And I was signing in, and there was a, one of the residents in her wheelchair. I don't know. She's 80 or 90 years old. I don't presume to guess. But... Um, so I was signing in, and I'd never seen this lady before, and she's just sitting there, and she looked at me, and she said, I like your ponytail. <laughs> I said, what? First of all, I'm thinking, that's a pickup line. <laughs> I said, what? She said, I like your ponytail. And I said, you do? She said, yeah. And I said, my mom hates it. <laughs> and she said, without a missing a beat, she said, if you were my son, I wouldn't like it either. <laughs> like, okay. So I wheeled her out in a snowdrift and left her. <laughs> no, my mom, even though she doesn't like my ponytail, she thinks of me, she loves me, she's my mom. But that's mom, not God. There's only three of us, kid, not 7.5 billion in all of human history. And God says, okay, let's go down that, let's go down that path a little bit. Isaiah 49. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? No, that's a mom's job. That's ridiculous. And God says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. How precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. Okay, another little Einstein here. You know, we've been talking about this anthropomorphic hand of God throughout this whole psalm. Look at this. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. The hand of God that has surrounded me behind and before he's laid his hand upon me. 
that he has hand-selected me, he has blessed me, the hand that guides me, the hand that holds me fast, that divine, powerful hand of God. And he says, oh, and by the way, the same hand that selects you and blesses you and holds you and guides you, take a look at here. I've got you tattooed right there. How precious to me are your thoughts. Oh, God, how? That's amazing. He's just, he's just blown away by this thought. At the thoughts of God, these thoughts toward him, they are extraordinary in substance. Not just a passing thought, not just a casual thought of, yeah, there's somewhere in the Northwest, I think, somewhere in the 21st century, I don't know. Not that. How precious to me. You know, I, I hesitated using this this weekend because I, I don't want to endorse this. Years ago on Saturday Night Live, there was this recurring segment called Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. Some of you are familiar with that. And, It'd be these deep thoughts, and then at the end, they'd take a twist, and they might have some goofy ending, or they might have some unexpected you know, conclusion, or something usually very inappropriate, whatever it might be. And I think that what the psalmist is coming to is that there are these deep thoughts with Yahweh, and they're not goofy, and they're not inappropriate. There are these deep thoughts of great substance that what he thinks about each one of us. Now, put these two together. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God? with something that some of you are very familiar with out of Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My thoughts towards you are higher than your thoughts toward yourself. They're higher than the thoughts your mother has of you. I think about you on such a transcendent level, higher than you can ever even imagine. Einstein once said, I want to know the thoughts of God. Everything else is mere details. But here's the thoughts of God. It's you and you and you. That's what he thinks about. It's pretty amazing. I think it kind of makes you think about the Willie Nelson song, You Were Always on My Mind. We're not going to sing that. God says, I'm always thinking about you. I don't know if you've ever had someone that did something very, very thoughtful thoughtful. Maybe you lost a, a, a parent or a, or a spouse and, and someone just remembered that anniversary and the next year or five years or whatever said, hey, I you know, sent this card and you just thought, man, that was awfully thoughtful. Or maybe they, maybe they know something about you and they just say, you know, we were, we were at Cannon Beach we, we knew that you loved lighthouses so we bought this. I mean, it's just so thoughtful that in that event or that occasion. Well, the psalmist realizes that God's thoughts, are, he's very thoughtful. But it's not just in events, and it's not just in occasions. When he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them, were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. That these thoughts that God has for us, the sum of them, he says it's beyond what I can even count. I mean, the grains of sand, are you kidding me? That his thoughts are not just extraordinary in substance, but they're myriad in sum. There's so many of them, they're countless. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says that before the foundations of the world, before God created the, the earth, before all of creation, he had you in his mind. That he's been thinking about you nonstop for all of those years that he would continue to think. When he says, how vast the sum, the sums, that's a mathematical term. You think about big numbers, numbers that I can't even comprehend. You know, we have names for numbers. And every three zeros, there's a new one, you know, million billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, 
sextillion. Then you get into the months of the year. Septillion, octillion, nontillion, dectillion. I mean, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So a 10 to the 15th power is a quintillion. In, in 1920, there was an American ma mathematician. His name was Edward uh, Kasner. Um, Edward Kasner was talking with his two nephews, and he wanted them to just be taken by numbers the way he was. And he was talking about big numbers. And he says, we ought to come up with a name for a really big number. Not like 10 to the 15th power, like 10 to the 100th power. And his nine-year-old nephew in, in 1920, nine-year-old nephew, Milton, came up with a name. He said, I think we ought to call it a Google. A Google is a one followed by 100 zeros. And it stuck. A nine-year-old came up with this. It stuck. And scientists and mathematicians have used this, uh, you know, for nearly a, a, a century now. And this is what a Google looks like. This is 100 zeros. That's a big number. And then they went the next level, and little Milton said, well, we ought to do one called a Googleplex, and this was his definition, a one with writing zeros until you get tired, <laughs> which makes sense, but his uncle was astute enough to know that would be pretty subjective that a Googleplex would be different for everybody depending on their stamina with writing. So he, he standardized and said a Googleplex is a one followed by this many zeros. Big number. This is the second biggest number with a name, a Googleplex. And then the largest number with a name is a Googleplexian, and it's a one followed by this many zeros. And so as I was doing the research on this, there was this place where you could download what this looks like. So I, I said, great, you got to pull the PDF file. And so here it is. This, this, and this is the Google Plex, and it's got a one, and it's got, these are all, I know you can't see it, these are a page of zeros. And then it goes on with, well, another page of zeros, and another page of zeros, and another page of zeros. And, another, and here's the crazy thing. It just, I mean, it kept going. Finally, when I got to page eight, it says, et cetera. Did they really have to wait eight pages into it to tell me we can't write this out? I mean, it's just too big. So Carl Sagan, some of you remember his name, Carl Sagan estimated that writing a Googleplex, not even a Plex, uh, Plexian, a Googleplex in full decimal form would be physically impossible since doing so would require more space than is available in the known universe. Well, a man named Wolfgang Nietzsche decided to take Sagan up on his challenge, and currently, I'm not making any of this up, Wolfgang Nietzsche is writing a book called A Googleplex Written Out. It's a multi-volume book. It's a very boring, <laughs> boring book. I showed you eight pages of it. In the first volume, he starts with a one, and then he lists off one million zeros. In volume two, he writes one million zeros. In volume three, you know where this is going? And there are millions and millions and millions of these volumes of zeros because he's trying to write this out. This is the largest, a Googleplexian is the largest number with a name. That is until recently, and this one isn't widely acknowledged or recognized by mathematicians yet, but it was created by an amateur U.S. mathematician named Bob Marvel. It's this. It's the Google Plexian Asaurus Rex. Made that one up myself. That's a really big number. Well, here's what's amazing is that, is that the psalmist doesn't know anything about Google or Google Plex or Google Plexinian or, or even mine. 
What he does know is the things that God would say to say, you can't even count this. Like when Abraham is going to have these descendants, he says, they'll be as, as numerous as the stars of the sky. And later he would say to Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And so he writes, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And as he's writing that, he's probably thinking about that coarse, grainy sand of the Sea of Galilee. Or maybe he's thinking of that sandy, gravel, rocky mixture of the Judean wilderness that he spent so much time in running from Saul. Or maybe that white, powdery sand from the endless seashore of the Mediterranean Sea. Or maybe the sand that he's heard about from the Negev desert or from the caravans that come from Egypt or from Babylon. And the number of sands, the grains of sand, can't even count what's in his hand, let alone what's in the seashore and the lakes and the deserts. And he says, were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. You can just imagine him sitting on the seashore thinking, as the sands of the hourglass. Or not. He says, we couldn't count them. That's how much our God thinks about us. How vast the sum of them. How countless. Like the sand. And then he says, and when I awake, I'm still with you. When I wake up. And again, maybe he's thinking about that verse out of Psalm 121 that talks about the God who watches over us never slumbers or sleep. This God who thinks about me, even when I'm asleep, he's sitting there watching me, he's thinking about me. Not because he's angry, but because he loves me so much, because he thinks about my life, he thinks about the days that he's ordained for me, he thinks about what I'm gonna experience the next day. You think about a young mother with a newborn baby as this little child is sleeping and how the mom, while she is so tired and sleep deprived, she doesn't wanna sleep, she just looks at this precious child, that tiny little nose and those perfect little fingers. And the love that she feels for this baby and the thoughts that she has for this child and how she longs for so much for this one. Or you think about a young groom as he wakes up on his honeymoon and he looks over at his bride and there she is so peaceful as she sleeps there in bed and he looks at her face and her skin is so smooth and she's got the face of a wee angel. And the little Steven Tyler in his head says, I don't want to close my eyes. Don't want to fall asleep because I'll miss you, baby. And I don't want to miss a thing. Okay, forget that one too. But this God who watches over us, who never slumbers and never sleeps, he thinks of us constantly. And his presence is with us with every awakening. Every time we wake up, his presence is there. And I think of all the different things that this could have meant to this guy. See, here's the downside of taking a couple scriptures out of a larger piece. Is that while we focus in on this, we may miss their tie to the rest of the psalm. Keep in mind what Pastor Kip talked about last week. He just comes off of, the, off of the, uh, the whole concept of we're being created in our mother's womb and God is, is weaving us together and knitting us together before we ever draw our first breath. And maybe it's in that vein when he's thinking about when that sperm fertilized that egg, it brought to life this awakening of life within my mother's womb. And at that point, when there was life, God, you were with me. And over the course of those nine months, you were with me. And then after nine months, there was this 
time when I left the only world I ever knew, the confines of this safe womb, and now I came out, and there was a new awakening, a brand new world with all kinds of opportunities, so much greater than what I could have ever experienced in the womb, and there at that awakening, you were with me. And every day, there's a kind of a little mini death and resurrection that happens in my life. Every day, I fall asleep, and while I'm sleeping, you're watching. And every morning, there's a little resurrection as I wake up again to a new day that you've ordained, new mercies, new opportunities, and there you're awake, and you're with me right there. And throughout my life, there's these moments of spiritual awakening when I discover truth about you, when I discover who I am in you, when I discover your love and your grace, and in those moments of spiritual awakening, you're still with me. That from every little awakening of the life that happened at conception, of birth, of every day, of every spiritual awakening in my life, you are with me. And then when I draw that final breath to that final resurrection, you are with me. When I leave the womb of this world that is all I've ever known and wake up into a new world, that is so much greater, a new eternal reality. You know, when Paul talks about those who have died, he refers to them as those who have fallen asleep. You know, the old gospel song talks about that great getting up morning, that final awakening, when we awaken the presence of God from the moment of conception until our last breath and into eternity. God, you are with me every time I awake. You're with me. You know, it's an interesting thing in this last month, on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, how many times I've been in the childbirth center with young families, young mothers, and this last month? How many times I've been in a funeral home or a graveside? I mean, in the last month, and these are just the ones I'm aware of Tom and Jillian welcomed little Braddock into the world. What a gift. John and Carrie bring little Dakota into the world. Heidi brings little Madison into the world. This week, Matt and Maggie bring little Calder into the world. Ben and Shannon bring little Olivia into the world. Drawing their first breath, starting the days that God has ordained for them. And this week, Standing with Kevin and Carla Moore and Dan and Brenda and Carrie and Dory as we buried their father and husband of almost 60 years. This week, hearing Matt Tellison talk of sitting by his mother's bedside as she drew her last breath and how difficult and how beautiful it was as she was born into a new reality that from conception to birth day after day to that final resurrection every time I awake I'm still with you you're still with me all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be how precious to me are your thoughts of God how vast the sum of them were I to count them they would outnumber the grains of sand and when I awake, I'm still with you. See, when you grasp that reality, then you can say with Jeremiah, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. 
great is your faithfulness. To know that this day, God has ordained for you, and he stayed up all night watching you, and he planned this day for you years ago. And he says, I have loved you. Now go and live in that love and spread that love. You know, I have redeemed you, so go and bring redemption to this world. I have reconciled you to myself, so be a minister of reconciliation in our broken world. I've impacted your life. Go and make an impact in this world. I have and am transforming you, so be an agent of transformation in this world. Live in my grace, extend my grace, my love, my mercy, my life. I've ordained this for you. So here's my challenge for you this week, because it'll really set us up for next week, in the final week of the series. And you may need to write this. I don't know how you're going to do this, but every single morning, as you start your day, bring this to mind, that God has been up all night thinking about you, and he has already ordained this day for you so that you could walk in the life that he created you to live. When you awake, he's still with you. Stand as we close in prayer. And Father, we say like the psalmist did, like Job did, and it's just, his knowledge is too great for us, too lofty for us to attain. So to whatever capacity we can understand, God, we be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you to whatever we can contain. And may we live in this truth and may we grip it and may it grip us so we can walk and be the people you have created to be stamped in your image, ordained to live this day. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, God bless you. Sorry for the Einstein theories all over the place. Have a great afternoon. Live with this truth. If you like prayer, our prayer team will be here in the front. Love to pray with you. Have a great afternoon. I love you. You're out of here.